Over the past few weeks as a church, we've been in a series that we've been calling Seven Weeks, Seven Antiheroes. And we're looking at a few different characters in the Bible that um, at first reading, at first glance, we could look at and think, oh, I wonder if I should try to be like this man or try to be like this woman. If you're like me and in the church culture that I grew up in, uh, if you grew up in one as well, maybe you were even taught at, at various stages that you should try to be like these people. So we're looking at a few of these different examples and, and looking at their lives and going, should we try to live like them? Or in reality, are they actually just like us and just as much in need of the grace of God and just as much in need of Jesus? This morning, we're going to be looking at two different kind of chunks of, of scripture verses from Joshua. The first is from Joshua chapter 2. The second is from Joshua chapter 6. They're going to come up on the screen behind me in a moment when Maria comes up to read. And if you've got a, a Bible on your phone or if you've brought one with you, feel free to turn there. If not, again, the, uh, the verses will come up on the screen here behind me. But we're looking at a woman this morning named Rahab. And in Joshua chapter 2, we're first introduced to her. And in Joshua chapter 6, we see uh, in, in her lifetime uh, the conclusion of, of her story, where she ends up going. So we're kind of bookending it this morning. That's why we're looking at two different sections. So I'll invite Maria to come up. She's going to read these verses. It's two longer sections this morning than we would normally have. But uh, follow along as we look at this together. This is Joshua 2, verses 1 to 14. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the ford. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Keep going. And now we're skipping to Joshua 6, verses 
22 to 25. <laughs> but the two men who had spied out the land, but to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. All right. Thank you, Maria. Some heavy stuff in these verses. We're going a bit Game of Thrones this morning, if you couldn't tell. If you've been following along with what uh, Maria was reading, it's some, some pretty heavy topics. So, um, I don't know how, all, how long you guys, because uh, again, over the past few weeks, we've had so many folks that are new that we're still um, really getting to know, which we're enjoying. But I don't know how many of you have been in Ottawa for long. I don't know if uh, for most of you... Ottawa is, is a uh, kind of a new place for you, whether you've been here for many years, but uh, Ottawa is a city, we, we like to kind of present that we have it all together. I don't know if you've, you've noticed that, you know, we're, we're a fairly tame city, we're not really a big party city. Uh, we'd like to think of ourselves kind of as the older sibling, the mature older sibling, so we leave the partying to Toronto and, and to Vancouver, but we're the, you know, we're the mature, kind of older, uh, responsible one, uh, unless some French robots come to town, and then we go crazy, it would seem, if you were in the city over the summer, the city just came alive when La Machine was in, in town. But on the whole, we do really like to present that as a city, that we have it all together. But the reality is that we don't. I want to read to you um, kind of some snippets from an article that was in the Ottawa Citizen this past June. So the headline for this article said this. It said, human trafficking cases in Ottawa have revealed shocking details. That was the headline. And the article went on to say this. In Ottawa, a handful of human trafficking cases have made headlines in the past decade all of which have produced convictions among them. In April 2009, a 29-year-old woman admitted in a Gatineau courtroom that she profited from keeping three young women as virtual sex slaves. She was sentenced to seven years in prison. The court heard that the accused recruited the women from local shelters, forced one of the women to freebase cocaine, assaulted and imprisoned two of them. The three victims were teenagers, each of whom earned $1,000 to $2,000 a day, uh, from, uh, from the person uh, who, who was convicted, uh, who fed their addictions crack cocaine and alcohol while driving them around town in a Cadillac Escalade. In February 2014, a 24-year-old man was sentenced to six years in prison after being convicted of human trafficking and of other crimes. The court heard that he lured a 17-year-old girl with mental health and hearing difficulties into prostitution by first acting as her boyfriend. When she resisted his demands, he assaulted her. The girl was rescued after an Ottawa hotel manager called police concerned by what he believed to be underage prostitution. In November 14, 2014, an 18-year-old woman was sentenced as an adult for her role as leader of a pimp ring that victimized five young girls, some as young as 13. She received six and a half years for the crimes that included human trafficking, assault, and uttering threats. And the final example this article gives, her final 
case. In April 2017, a 35-year-old man was sentenced to seven months of house arrest for bringing women from China to work in his three Ottawa brothels. The court heard that he brought the women to Ottawa on visitors' visas, then kept 40% of the money they earned selling sex services in his three rental properties. He served the equivalent of 10 months in jail before his trial. This is in Ottawa. Uh, This isn't... Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, Calgary. This is in Ottawa. In fact, because uh, I read The Citizen pretty much every day, I know that the details of some of these cases actually have act- are, are, are relevant to places very close to where we are right now. It's not happening. Well, it may, might be as well, but it's not just on the outskirts of Ottawa. It's right here in the city centre. But still, as a city, we really try to project this image of having it all together. We really try to project this idea that, that as a city we come with our ambitions. We come with the things that we want to achieve. We're quite a high achieving city, aren't we? Many of you, particularly the students that are in the room here or if you moved to Ottawa as a student, many of you have been among the top of your class when you were in high school and even getting into university. You're getting really, really good grades. There's something about the way that Ottawa is wired that has attracted you. You've come in with your four- or your five-year plan. You've come in with the company or the government department or the role or the policy job or whatever it might be that you have your sight set on that you want to get into. And because Ottawa attracts that type of person, as I was saying a few minutes ago, we don't as much attract somebody who's just coming looking for a good time. Because if you're just coming looking for a party, we all know, as much as we love Ottawa, that there are other cities that are going to offer you more of a, just of a good time. But if you're coming with focus, if you're coming with ambition, Ottawa has a lot, a lot to offer you, including great salaries and great quality of life and everything else. But again, we really try to project that that's how we are. And we don't often acknowledge a complete other side to our city that is very, very prevalent, even very close to where we are here this morning. Now, to set the scene for the verses that Maria read to us a few minutes ago, Joshua, who is the leader of the nation of Israel, and they have been on a journey, Joshua sends two spies into a city called Jericho, and they end up essentially at a a prostitute's house. There are different schools of thought on this. Some actually think that the woman we've heard about named Rahab actually ran a brothel. So we do know that she, she ran an inn, and some people think that the language that is used is actually referring to an inn that was a house of prostitution. We don't know for certain, but we know that in Jericho's culture of the time and in our culture of the time here in Ottawa that there is some overlap. There are some things that would have been relevant to prostitution even all those many, many years ago that is still very relevant today. Now, we don't know for sure, whether Rahab was a willing prostitute. Now, I was chatting with uh, Matt earlier this week about this. Matt and I uh, team on a lot of the sermons, well, every sermon that you hear at Grace City, even though this morning you're hearing my voice. Matt has shaped it a lot. He speaks into it a lot. We draw others in on occasion as well and really collaborate together. And he very helpfully made a comment to me this week in preparation where he said, even for somebody who's in prostitution willingly, even voluntarily, still life circumstances may have dictated things in such a way that they still don't want to be there, even if they have been forced into it. And I think that's a really valid point. Now, with what's going on with Rahab, we simply don't know. 
We do know that in the culture of the day, in the culture of Jericho at that time, the prostitution wasn't quite as frowned on as it would have been, as it would be today in our culture. Chances are, if you work in the sex industry and you came into church here for coffee and you're chatting with somebody in line, my guess is that that didn't come up very quickly. Maybe it did. I don't know. But in our culture, that's not something that would be talked about really, really openly. In Jericho, it would have been more so in that case. But we do know that Rahab was a prostitute. We know it for certain, because even in the verses that we've just read, she's named as a prostitute many times over. And what's going on in the backstory here is this, is that God had a chosen nation, a chosen people that many, many years before were in slavery, about 40 years before they were in slavery in a nation called Egypt. And if you've seen any of the, uh, you know, the films, uh, Disney's The Prince of Egypt, uh, Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments, uh, Exodus, God and Kings. If you've seen any of those films, you're vaguely familiar with the story of the Exodus. God's people in slavery, God sends these ten plagues to show Pharaoh, look, I'm serious. I've told you through Moses to let my people go. Now let them go, and Pharaoh just keeps going, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, and keeps going back on his word, and eventually it gets really, really messy. And finally, Pharaoh says, Go. And even still he pursues them, but God saves his people. And there his people are then wandering through the desert for many years. Now fast forward to the end of their journey, towards the end of their journey, and they're getting ready to go into the promised land. They're getting ready to go into the place that God had spoken to them about, that their sight had been set on. And they had a lot of setbacks along the way. I mean, at various times, they started worshiping other things. Moses, their leader, goes up a mountain to spend time with God. And, and, and he, as a leader, is feeling hugely discouraged. These people, they're, they're tough. They're a tough people to lead. They're a stubborn people to lead. Moses goes to spend time with God. He comes down the mountain. And the people, under their kind of vice leader, have taken off their jewelry and all of their gold and made a, a, a gold calf. And they're bowing down to it. And Moses is going, guys, seriously, what How? I just went for a walk. And I come back. And you guys are worshiping this golden cow. And he says to Aaron, he says, look, what, what, is, what is happening here? Oh, the, the he gets all cowardly. All oh, the people, they, they made me do it, and we took this gold, and we threw it into a furnace, and out popped this cow, which is just, I think, one of the funniest stories in the Bible. Just comes up with the worst excuse ever. And Moses is having to navigate all of that. He's having to navigate people saying, Moses, you're a horrible leader. We don't want you anymore. Threats on his life. Like, it's just messy. It's really, really messy. But eventually, in God's faithfulness and in God's unending grace to them, as you read the story, they still come towards the promised land, just about to enter into it, but one thing stands in their way, and there is this city called Jericho. And it is a mighty city. It's a walled city. Some of you have been able to travel and visit walled cities. The closest one to here would be in Quebec. And even there, uh, you know, as you, as you approach Quebec City, looking up, seeing this enormous walled city, it makes a statement, doesn't it? I mean, imagine these days we have, you know, uh, aircraft and, and, and all this advanced weaponry. But going back not that long, coming up, you know, with the military towards a walled city. How do, how do you, how, where do you even start with a walled city? And the people of God are looking at Jericho, and that is what they're seeing. So Joshua, who's now leading the people of God, he sends in two spies. The spies go in, and where do they end up? They end up in this prostitute's house. Not because they were thinking something else. They were ending up in the prostitute's house because they were led there by God. Why in the world would God lead two spies from his own nation to a prostitute's house? Well, I think the answer is this. God is wanting to show just how deep his grace runs. 
God is wanting to show, even though we might look at it on the surface and go, there are some people that God could never use. God goes, oh yeah, watch this. That's why God leads these two spies to this prostitute's house, and they engage in this conversation with Rahab. And that's what we're going to be looking at as the story goes on a little bit. What happens in terms of Rahab's faith, the faith that she shows. Now, there's other schools of thought as to why they may have ended up at the prostitute's house. In that day, it was thought that, uh, or, or, or many commentators, many historians think that in that day, that a house of prostitution or a prostitute's house, or whatever way we want to view it, would have been a place where information comes together. So, uh, if you have ever watched kind of an old western, and you see John Wayne walking into the old saloon, if he wants to find out where the bad guy is, if the bad guy isn't in the saloon, he can probably find out where the bad guy is by speaking to people in the saloon, because the saloon is where information comes together. It's where all of the major players in the society and in the culture kind of gather. As I say that, I recognize that most of you are going, who is John Wayne? What is a Western movie? What is a saloon? So let me give this other example. This is a picture of Central Perk in Friends, all right? Most of you have seen Friends. If you haven't seen Friends, I have nothing to offer you this morning. All right? Uh, This is as far as my contextual examples are going to be able to go. But if you wanted to know about, let's see if I can do it, Ross, Rachel, Phoebe, Joey, Chandler, and don't tell me, Rachel. Did I already say Rachel? Have I done it? No, I said Rachel. Who am I missing? Don't tell me who I'm missing. Ross's sister is named Monica. There we go. Ah, all right. Man. How did I get onto that? Anyway, uh, if, if you wanted to learn about the culture that they exist in, if you wanted to learn about Manhattan and about six people that live in central Manhattan in a massive apartment but never seem to go to work and nobody knows how they pay for that, you would go to Central Perk and you would be around the sofas and you would learn about them in their culture. Well, there are many people that think that with Rahab and the spies going to her house that there was a similar thing going on. They wanted to learn about the culture, and in that time, that's where they would have gone to learn about it. Again, we don't know the exact reasons, but we do learn a huge amount about the depth of the grace of God in sending them there and engaging in this conversation with Rahab. Now, in Hebrews chapter 11, Rahab is named in in this incredible list of people, people that, again, we could easily look at and think of as as heroes of the Bible, And as we read through this list, we see Rahab's name mentioned in it. And if you're looking at that list, maybe you're inclined, like me, to kind of think, what's Rahab's name doing in here? How in the world did she make it on that list? That's what we're going to look at right now. What is it about Rahab that means that in Hebrews 11, she is applauded, she is lifted up, she is recognized for something good, for something virtuous, for something that is noble, this prostitute? How does she herself end up on the list? Even though we don't know how she ended up in prostitution or really much about her backstory, how is she mentioned there? Well, in Genesis chapter 2, sorry, Joshua chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, we read about Rahab's response, what she says to these two spies that show up. This is what Rahab says. I know that the Lord has given you the land. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water out of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, and Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, 
And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. This is amazing. Listen to the language that she's using. For I know that the Lord has given you the land. I know that the Lord has given you the land. She, she's speaking about something in, in present tense that is in future tense. She's speaking about something that has not yet happened as though it had already happened. In Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews, before they get to that list of these people of incredible faith, Hebrews chapter 11 starts by this, it's like this. It says, now faith is the insurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And this is exactly what we see happening in Rahab. This is exactly what earns her that spot in this, in this hall of fame, kind of this hall of fame of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Because she's saying in faith, I know that the Lord has given you the land and the Lord your God. He is the God of the heavens above and he is the God of the earth below. This Rahab, this prostitute, making these statements in incredible, incredible faith. Now, we love making a big deal about some other characters in the Bible. And one of the ones that we really like making a big deal about, when I say we, I mean in, in our kind of pseudo-Christian culture that we all exist in. One of the people that we like making a big deal about, and we do it every year, is, is uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus. And we love the story of Mary. We love reading about the angel Gabriel appearing to Mary. Uh, maybe you didn't know Mary was a teenager. I mean, she was young, young, young than most of the women in this room here this morning. And the angel Gabriel appears to her, Mary, this virgin, saying, you will be with child. Friends were telling me the other day about the show on Netflix, Jane the Virgin, and the, kind of the, the opening uh, episodes where she finds out that she's pregnant because of this, I don't know, I haven't seen it yet, but this, 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 this crazy thing that happens anyway. And you can imagine what's going through her mind. How is this even possible? What is happening here? This is exactly, in a true story, what happens with Mary, the mother of Jesus. We love reading about that. We love reading about the Christmas story. And we love hearing Mary's song. We've even given a fancy Latin name to it, the Magnificat, where Mary breaks out in this song, My soul doth magnify the Lord. And she's singing this out, and you can go to performances of this and, 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 and hear just about how great Mary is and how wonderful Mary is. But to the best of my knowledge, we don't have a song that has been put to Rahab. We don't have a song that really takes Rahab's statement of, I know the Lord has given you the land. The Lord your God is the God in the heavens above and of the earth below. We don't seem quite as eager to sing the song of Rahab, the prostitute. I wonder why that is. The Bible tells us that both Rahab and Mary, different women, very different lives, but both sinners saved by grace, both of them. And I know in our city, that cuts across uh, the teaching that many of us would be accustomed to when it comes to Mary. But I want you to know that we believe this book, and we believe what this book says. And this book does not give us a picture of a perfect Mary. It gives us a picture of a perfect Jesus but that Mary, 
the very mother of Jesus and Rahab and any other person in Scripture apart from Jesus Christ himself are all sinners just like you are and just like I am. So if we take this idea that, oh, well, Mary, no, Mary was perfect, and some of these other heroes of Scripture, they were perfect. These are people that we should really try to be like. We have no alternative but to end up with the type of thinking that says this, that God only saves those who are perfect, that God only saves those who are pure, that God only works through those who are pure. God only works through those who are righteous. Those, God only works through those who are always good kind of all the time. And we see clearly all throughout Scripture, and including in the story of Rahab, that that is not the case. Now, the thing is, in that statement, you know, that God only accepts those who are perfect and those who are pure. You know what? We're half right. We're actually on to something a bit. But we can trick ourselves into two things, really. The first is this, is thinking that we in ourselves can do anything about our own sin, that we can do anything to ourselves, to make ourselves right before God. Sometimes we fall into that type of thinking. Uh, a, a word that we would apply to that would be legalism. People that think, if I just follow all the rules, if I follow all of the rules perfectly, like by the book, by the book, and never, ever, ever slip up, then I'll be pure, then I'll be good, then I'll be righteous, and then God will accept me. I spent many years of my life trying to live like that, does not work. It puts a pressure on you that you you just can't live up to yourself. It only ends in failure quickly. Many of you know what I'm talking about. But the other way that we trick ourselves is that we completely underestimate just how serious our sin is. I've worked as a, as a church pastor for quite some time, a couple of years now here in Ottawa, and before that for a longer time back in the United Kingdom. And I had a number of people, I've had a number of people come up to me and say, oh, I, I love Jesus, I have a relationship with Jesus, but I don't want to go and have communion, or I don't want to be baptized, or I don't want to this, or I don't want to that, until I can make myself right before God. I had a really good friend, still have a good friend, uh, back, <laughs> still have a few good friends back in England, haven't severed all those relationships, don't worry, but I had a really good friend back in England who for many, many months, this was his thing, he would come up to me on Sunday towards the end of every service and I would look at him and be like, man, come, come with me, let's go have communion together, let's do this, no, I'm just, I can't, well, man, why, why can't you, because I, 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 there's just some more stuff I got to sort out, there's just some more stuff I got to make right. And for many weeks, I would try to reason with them, man, no, no, you're, you're saved by grace. It, it, it's because you're in Jesus. His record of perfection has been extended to you. No, 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 I know, I, I know, I know, I know, but I just got to make some things right. Well, then you don't know. <laughs> you don't know. And eventually, I just, I just had to stop trying to explain it and explain it and explain it. And I was just, God, you've got to do this. You've got to do something in his heart. One morning, I was volunteering in the children's ministry. We were short some, for some children's ministry volunteers. I was in a completely separate room. There's some others that were leading in the service. And the door flung open, and he ran into the room. My first thought was, what happened in the other room? Is everything okay? Because the other room was near the main entrance to the building. He ran up to me. He grabbed me by the arm, which further made me think that something had happened. And he grabbed me by the arm, and he ran me into the other room, and he walked up to the communion table with me. And he said, I get it. I get that this is about what Jesus has done for me. We took communion there together, him for the very first time. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. Guys, Rachel's, uh, Rachel, Rahab, Rahab is a prostitute. I'm not going to live that one down. Rahab, Rahab in the Bible is a prostitute. 
but she's still, there's something of a great work of faith inside of her. She is still a sinner saved by grace just as much as Mary is, just as much as you are, and just as much as I am. You know what? What I was saying a few minutes ago about we can underestimate the seriousness of our sin. The story of Rahab in the Bible and and, and her being mentioned many times over as a prostitute, the biblical writers aren't wanting us to lose sight of this. It's not because they're trying to thumb kind of their noses at her and say, look how wicked she is, look how vile she is. It's because they're wanting us to understand, just as I said earlier, how deep the grace of God can run. Some of you even coming here this morning, you're thinking, no, I just, I, I, it's weird being in here. I feel like I can only come to church this morning because it's in this space. Even in Ottawa, I've had people come up to me going, I can't, I can't dare walk into a traditional building or an ornate building. There's nothing wrong with those buildings at all. But sometimes people can think, no, I can't go into those because God, God doesn't want me to be in there. He'll strike me down. You know what? All of us are on the same footing. Every single one of us here this morning are on the exact same footing. And the Bible's very explicit in its language around prostitution, partially, and this, look, I know what I'm about to say is going to sound controversial, but I believe it to be true in conviction in this book. The Bible speaks about us as when it comes to God and being faithful to God, we ourselves are the prostitutes. And there are many different texts that I could take you to. You can read in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, in 2 Kings, in Hosea. The whole book of Hosea, it's short. But God says to this prophet, prophet, go and marry a prostitute because I'm getting so frustrated with my own people. I want them to understand what it's like for me to be their God. They need to understand it. So we are going to have to make this explicitly clear. Go and marry a prostitute. Go and marry one who, who the nation is going to be able to see this acted out with, you guys as a couple, because then finally they'll see and they'll understand something of it. And oh man, we can be so quick to read that and go, oh, Israel, they're so bad. They're so bad. They're so unfaithful. We are just the same. They made their gods of of gold from earrings and made a golden calf. We make our gods of bank balances. We make our gods of sex and sexuality. We make our gods of career of education, of achievement. We have our own gods ourselves. Friends, we are the ones who are unfaithful. I want to read some verses from Hosea chapter 2. God, in Hosea chapter 1, speaking through Hosea, in the first part, the first 14 verses of Hosea chapter 2, he goes on and on and on about the unfaithfulness of his people, the unfaithfulness of his nation. It's tough reading, and the language that he's using is very, very strong. He talks about how they whore themselves after other gods, after other lovers. He's not mincing his words one bit. He even goes so far as to say that some of the resources that he has given them, they are using to cheat on him with. Some of you know what I'm talking about, because you've been in situations, or you know of situations close to you, where... Just thinking of an example where somebody gives somebody else a cell phone, a new iPhone. Here's a, here's a brand new iPhone. Here, enjoy it. I love you. I want you to have this. And later finds out months or years later that that person that they gave the iPhone to, their, their lover, their partner, their spouse, their boyfriend, their girlfriend, whatever it might be, has been using that iPhone that was given to them as a gift to text and to call their other lover, to text and to call and to be in relationship, illicit relationship with the other one. And that's what God is saying that Israel has done. The very resources that I have given to you, 
out of my love for you, you are using them to cheat on me. What would you do in that situation? I know what I would do. I would not be happy. I would not be gracious. I would not be full of mercy. Anger would rise up inside. I, I, I say I know what I would do. To be honest with you, I don't know what I would do. I would struggle to control myself. It would be bad. I'm just being honest with you guys. I, I suspect that many of us would say, yeah, it'd be a very similar scene. Let's read in Hosea chapter 2, verse 14, through to verse 20, how God responds. And the first word is therefore. You think that God eases his way into this in the verses before? He doesn't. It shifts on a dime. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. We can understand that word allure as pursue. I'm going after her. I'm not giving up on her. I'll bring her into the wilderness. We, even Christians, think of the wilderness as a bad place. God is saying, I'm going to bring my bride, I'm going to bring my wife into a place where there are no distractions. Me and her. And we're going to talk. And I will speak to her tenderly. And there I will give her vineyards, her vineyards. I will give her her vineyards. And make the valley of Accor a door of hope. And there she shall answer in the days of her youth, as of the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. No longer will you call me the other God. That's what God's saying. For I will remove the names of the Baals, the other gods, from her mouth. And they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the fields and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, the war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice In steadfast love and in mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. God is a very different type of husband. Husbands in the room, men in the room, God is a very different type of husband than you are or than you will be. He's a very different type of spouse, quick with grace, quick with mercy. And we might think, how in the world can a God who talks about giving justice, he claims to be a God of justice, how can he just turn a blind eye? How can he just look at these different things that have happened, these wrongs that have been committed? How can he just make it sound like nothing has even happened, that there's no penalty to be paid? And God says, no, a penalty will be paid. And it will be put on my son. It will be put on my best. And that's what happened at the cross of Jesus. Some of you in this room have cheated on others and have, or have been cheated on yourself or you've known relationships with your parents or loved ones or close friends where this has happened. And you can think, and I, look, I get it. I totally get it. I've been in that situation. This wrong has been committed to me. It's been done to me. You know what? Ultimately, that wrong was committed to God because every relationship in some way is meant to be a reflection of who he is. And Jesus on the cross takes a penalty for that. And this means hope for us this morning. That means that if you're here this morning carrying pain because you know that these wrongs have been committed to you, these things that we've been talking about this morning have been committed to you, it means that you can know that Jesus has taken all of the bad feeling, all of the shame, all of the guilt, all of the anger, all of it. He has absorbed all of it on the cross in your place. 
And on the flip side, some of you are thinking, this hits really close to home because I have been the one who has caused the pain. I have been the one who has done this to others. There's hope for you this morning as well because on the cross, Jesus bore the penalty that you deserved and that I deserved for that. That was me. When I was in my early 20s, I was in a long-term relationship with a girl. She treated me so well. She was great. And I was unfaithful to her left and right. I treated her like dirt. I felt so bad. I felt so sick. I hated myself for it. And you know what? There are still times when my mind goes back to that where I can still feel guilt. I can still feel shame about it. The toughest conversation I ever had with Natalia, who's my wife, was when we were engaged where we talked about this. Those feelings rising up again. But the gospel means for me and for you, if you can relate to that, that we don't need to carry that. Maybe there's a conversation that should be had. Maybe you should reach out in an appropriate way and say, that thing I did to you, I'm sorry. I'm not saying don't consider that. But before God, the guilt and the shame that you've carried for that, you don't need to. The gospel means that Jesus has carried that for you. And he has made a way for you to be seen as a son or a daughter of God. Pure, perfect, and righteous. Women in the room, the gospel means for you that whatever was said over you when you were a little girl, you're such a pretty little girl. Or you're, you're an ugly little girl. You don't have talent. You're not like your sibling. You're not like the other kids in the class. Whatever your identity was then, that maybe you just think you're an older version of that today. Whatever happened with Rahab when she was younger, uh, we don't know. We simply don't know. Whatever led her to the choices that she made and the career that she chose or didn't choose, we don't know. But we know that the depth of God ran so great, the grace of, of God ran so great in her life that not only because of her faith was she used for God's purposes in, 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 in letting this nation come into Jericho and defeat it, not only that, but Rachel and her family were adopted into the people of God. Not only was she saved, she was saved and added. There's a huge difference there. Not only was she saved, she was saved and added into the people of God, where when we get to the end of those verses from Joshua chapter 6, it says, and, and, and Rahab has lived in Israel to this very day. You want to know the extent of the grace of God on the life of Rahab? Read Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. You know who's mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus? Rahab. The prostitute. An ancestor of Jesus Christ. I don't know what you've done. I don't know what you've walked in here with this morning. I don't know what has been done to you. Whatever it is, it is no match for the grace of God. I'm going to invite the band to come up. We're going to worship together.